This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello everyone. The Climate Action Show aims to give a platform to groups taking climate action. And in that spirit, today we'll hear from a climate activist who is standing as an independent in the coming election. She is Hannah Beth Luke. She describes the wonderful community spirit shown in response to the Lismore floods and why she was called the Angel of Bali. This interview was recorded by Robert McLean in Shepparton. His podcasts called Climate Conversations can be found on the Climactic website. But first, here is an invitation to go on a cultural tour of the Wangan and Jagalingu lands in Queensland. The Tour de Carmichael is on again. It's like the Tour de France, only it's better. It's two days after the election from 23rd to 27th of May, and it's not too late to register. We will hear from Cody McAvoy and Fahima Badruhisham about just why this will be your opportunity to learn about Aboriginal culture and how they are protecting the land. They have been camping near the Adani Bravis Carmichael mine pit for over 200 days. The tour is mainly to highlight the destruction that Adani is doing alongside highlighting Wangan and Jagalingu culture to reinforce to the mining companies and to the government that we're still here and we're still practicing our culture. This has been my home for many, many months. I hope you guys feel at home as well. In these weeks leading to the election, there's been a blurring between exported coal and gas and the coal we are using for power stations. You might have heard politicians slip and slide around that, but it's the exported coal and gas that so many brave climate action groups on front lines around the country are trying to stop. If you are in a conversation with people about parties that are still subsidising fossil fuels to the tune of $11 billion per year, just remind them of how that exported coal and gas is coming back to bite us in floods, fires and chaos. I asked that question in a public forum where I live and one of the candidates, I won't say which party, but he said, oh, I don't think we have any fossil fuel subsidies. Well, they certainly do. And uh, a lot of people are talking about state capture by fossil fuel industry. So this is an essential question I think we can ask our friends if they're wavering about who to vote. If you know any swinging voters, that's a key 
thing, I think we can ask them. But this statement from the Wangan and Jagalinga people says it best. Here's a quote from them. If the Carmichael mine were to proceed, it would tear the heart out of the land. The scale of this mine means it would have devastating impacts on our native title, ancestral lands and waters, our totemic plants and animals, and our environmental and cultural heritage. It would pollute and drain billions of litres of groundwater and obliterate important springs systems. It would potentially wipe out threatened and endangered species, and it would literally leave a huge black hole, monumental in proportions, where there were once our homelands. These effects are irreversible. Our land will be disappeared. Nor would the direct impacts be limited to our lands. They would have cascading effects on the neighbouring lands and waters of other traditional owners and other landholders in the region. And the mine would cause damage to climate with the burning of the coal unleashing a mass of carbon into the atmosphere and propelling dangerous global warming. We could not in all conscience consent to such wholesale destruction, nor could we allow such a project to contribute to the dire unfolding effects of climate change that pose such great risks to all people. We know that many other people who care deeply about conserving natural places, vital water resources, and the great fauna and flora of central Queensland and a healthy planet share our concerns about this mine. Please stand with us in our defence of country. When we say no, we mean no. And don't forget that there are big yellow advertisements going up all over the country on SBS TV practically every night when I look, advertising for a party where the main person in that party owns a mine in the Galilee Basin, just beyond where the Adani mine is. So here is Cody McAvoy up at Wadanangu. Wadamuli, everyone. I'm uh, standing at the at the quarry site, just 10 k's away from the front gate. The internet's been pretty dodgy for the last two weeks. So I've got to try and fix it before the tour happens. But uh, this will be one of the places that we stop off at our first kind of like little break or something because um, we've got a little bit of internet. So we'll be able to uh, upload some photos and some videos and stuff like that. But it's uh, day 229 here at Watanungu. I've been here and slept at Watanungu every night for 229 days. And I love it. I love this place. The more that I'm here, the more I become attached to it. And the more I feel like I need to do something about it. So we originally did the tour last year to pretty much just, you know, stir the pot really because, you know, Adani's got to pay for these roads to get fixed and the farmers were complaining that the, the roads weren't getting fixed. I thought, why not create a little tour? We come up with the idea of Tour de Carmichael. It's literally just a rip-off of Tour de France, but better because it's it's out here, I guess. But, you know, we we did it with the assumption that, we're going to do it and we're going to do it anyway. The police tried to call me last year and said, oh, are you going to get a permit? I said, no, I'm not going to get a permit because I'm not going to be subject to your to your laws on, on this matter. This is a cultural tour. So they were fine, fine with that last year and they haven't even asked this year. So 
Last year, we had police escorts on motorbikes next to us. We had police cars out the front, police cars out the back, and um, they they stopped the traffic for us when when we were driving past. So, you know, it was basically just a just a finger in the face to Adani and to the government that you know we're going to ride our bikes down to the footprint. So the footprint is you've seen on the video there and it, and it looks like a footprint and it's the last remaining um, old growth trees in around the area. And there's some old big scar trees in there. There's a lot of birthing trees in there. And there's also, there's also a uh, burial tree there. So it's a very special place. And if you come on the tour, if you've been to the tour last year, you've seen it, but if you come on the tour this year, um, I'll do a little bit more explanation about different scars and what they represent and we'll have a few examples of different scars, such as like resource scars, call them one scars, um, directional trees. There's all different types that you'll get to learn on the tour. So I've been in contact with the police. Um, everything is all good there. This is a fun, friendly, family, safe event. You don't have to feel like uh, this is not a protest, ladies and gentlemen. This is a cultural tour. It's a cultural tour that is something different because we are describing our country to you. So when we're, when we're taking you through our country, we're naming the mountains and we're telling you the stories of the mountains and the rivers. This is what gives us our identity as Wangan and Jagalingu people. So if you come on the tour, uh, you're going to see firsthand of uh, the cultural the cultural knowledge of the area and have a little bit more of an understanding on our position on the way that we see this mine and uh, what we plan for the future and how we plan on continuing to fight against this mine. So where I am at the moment, I'm on a, a mining lease. Well, it's an illegitimate mining lease. They got this mining lease by taking compulsory acquisition through Anthony Lynham in 2015. And then in 2016, they got a dodgy Indigenous land use agreement signed. So we all, as, as a group in 2014, all said no. And then Adani decided to fracture the group and they got their Indigenous land use agreement. So fast forward to now which is seven years since you know that compulsory acquisition was taken and we're still here we're still saying no and we're saying no you can't have this the northern section of this mining lease so where i am at the moment is basically right smack bang in the middle of the mining lease i've got signs up all the way along saying no entry so i've staked my claim and i'm not giving it back and i don't plan on giving it back anytime soon so the position that we have at the moment is there's a mutual agreement between us and the, and the Queensland police that they leave me alone and I won't cause any ruckus. Um, so, you know, we've been here, what, 229 days now and <clears throat> the police have completely thrown up their hands. They, they would rather work with us than against us. So we live um, comfortably out there. This is one of the most peaceful places that you can ever come to. So I can only just encourage everybody that, you know, this is a wonderful place to come out to. Don't feel intimidated 
that like you're going to get arrested, there will be no arrest going on. And this is a family fun event to come along and see nature like you don't get to see it. Um, When you're driving around in the car, you don't really get to see as much as you do as when you're riding on a push bike. So there'll be a few stops along the way. The first stop will be at a a creek. And then um, at the next stop will be at the causeway. And then we'll be stopping at Dalgiu Dinner, the footprint. And then the end of the tour will be at Wananangu. So there's a, it goes over five days, uh, but Watanungu is the last stop, and I think we'll be having about two days there, and there should be some um, workshops going on and, and things like that to um, give a bit of people some um, education about, you know, our culture and customs and things like that. So all I can do is encourage everyone to come along. If you've come along last year, you know how fun it is. And to the people that haven't come last year, trust me, come along. You'll enjoy yourself. And we will, uh, we will be having so much fun that <clears throat> the people that didn't come will be missing out. So as I said again, you're all welcome. Everybody is welcome to come to Watanungu. Everybody is welcome to come to the Tour de Carmichael as well. If you want to come earlier to the Tour de Carmichael, you're more than welcome to come to Watanungu and set up uh, your tent first um, or caravan or whatever you would like to bring. Um, if First in, best dress. So if you pick the best spot, you get the best spot. And I'm hoping to see you all there. Awesome. I think we're going to have some questions a bit later. So um, I think is that time? I might chuck it back to Matt. I'd love to introduce... Uh, now, Fahima, um, who's a lead Stopper Downey organiser, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. Uh, she's based on Gidjigal land in Sydney's eastern suburbs, and she's going to give us a little testimony about what it's actually like to be up in Watanungu and up on country. So over to you, Fahima. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so just a bit of background about myself. Um, I'm a Muslim person. I grew up in Malaysia and came to Australia in 2007 so i am also i also come from a people who were colonized so in my work for climate justice i think a lot about the intersection of race justice and decolonization which is why i feel that um standing in solidarity with um wangan and jangalingu and other um First Nations people is very important. It's at the core of how I approach my organizing. And I traveled to Wadanangu earlier on in the year because I really want, I I wanted to be at Wadanangu like since day one, since Kudi kind of did that that first sort of Facebook post. I was like, yeah, I, I definitely want to try to get up there. And yeah, I finally made it. I really wanted to be there for um, Invasion Day or um, as Kutz has um, rebranded it to um, Reoccupation Day, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, and and I traveled to WNJ country. I've, I kind of like felt that because I've been working with the Stop Udani campaign, working on banks and corporations in the city, I have this theoretical understanding of, um, of what the situation is, but kind of like being there on Kudi's country, it just sort of went from my head to my heart. 
everything just felt super real and i loved meeting sort of the wnj crew and like everyone else who works so hard to keep the show on the road and seeing the the country the natural beauty of of that of that area was just unbelievably beautiful it was such a wonderful experience for me i remember this moment where i was in the bora ring chatting to quotes about kind of like language about the Rudy language and i saw a truck behind him tipping soil like you know um so i'm just sort of like seeing the mind grow in real time while kudi's talking to me about sovereignty and and getting his land back it was such a mind-blowing contrast and kind of like yeah i came back to the city and just felt like shit's real <laughs> and you know we need to do everything we can to stop not only this mind but all the minds yeah so i feel very determined is that experience has sort of like lifted up my campaigning and my organizing over the last two or three months. And I'm really excited for the tour because I really want to see the rest of this really, really stunning country and hear the stories and see culture that is still being practiced. Yeah, it would be a wonderful experience, something that I'm really excited to be a part of. Hori is doing a fantastic job, teaching me some language, talking about his tribe, talking about his culture. We're on the Beliendo River right now. This is the boundary in between Wangan and Jagalingu country. We're currently on the Jagalingu side. This is all on Jagalingu country, all the way down, all the way down to Alpha from here. So it goes from there, and it's supposed to go out to the, to the end of the Great Dividing Range, where the watershed is. It's a great opportunity for people to come together and learn more about the impact of the mine. To come out here and actually see it will be a wake-up call for everybody and I think they'll go back and feel more committed. So Adani will be building two massive dams. These dams will hold the water that they bring in from um, the Sutter River. And then after a while of them washing the coal, the silt and the chemicals that come off the coal will end up sitting on the bottom of the dam. And what happens is they wait until a flood season comes and then they apply to the government for a permit to pollute, and which pretty much gives them the green light to open up their floodgates when it floods, uh, wash all the silt out of their dams down into the rivers and out to the uh, Great Barrier Reef. Dungumbula translates to many waters and it's called many waters because there's many little mound springs that pop up all around that area even into the into the area where where the pit is being built right now the dungabula springs the main spring is the final resting place of the rainbow serpent in our religion if you disturb Munagata's resting place he'll come and bring great natural disasters like floods and landslides. We're here to try and protect people from from that happening.
This isn't, um, you know, the, the be-all and end-all. It, it's just the beginning. you hear from Music Sans Frontières. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership-based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au. And now we will go to Lismore and Mary Beth Luke, who is standing in the coming election. She is talking to my colleague Robert McLean. And I vowed to make my life count, to not waste a day, to have courage, to stand up and speak the truth. And what I've seen now in our communities is that. And I went back in and I, and, I, and I saw a young man on the ground, so I picked him up, I carried him out, and a photo was taken, and that was how I became the Angel of Bali. But that's what so many hundreds of people in our communities just did here in, in Lismore, Woodburn, Broadwater. They jumped on tinnies in the middle of the night and they, they hacked their neighbours out of the roof with whatever they could they they went for hours on a kayak to, to get people out because that's all the craft they had. You know, people intrinsically are incredible. And those those core Aussie values, you know, mateship, compassion, fair go, equality, like that those are the things that make it so special to be human, you know, and it and it and it that was something that helped me to heal from the Bali bombing and I hope that, that will help people to heal from this as well. That's the independent candidate for Page, Hannah Beth Luke, talking about her experiences in the 2002 Bali bombings. Hannah Beth, who will go to the polls on May 21 for the federal seat of Page, was humble about what happened in Bali, but she said she saw those same traits exhibited over and over again during the floods in northern New South Wales. First, we'll have some brief formalities, and then we'll have a discussion with Hannah Beth. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Victoria, Australia, from the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I chose to stand because what I was seeing in, in politics was having an an impact on the people, the lives of the people around me. I could see that young families couldn't afford a home. I could see that our emergency services were just underfunded and stretched. And I could see bushfires and floods ripping through our, our region and, and it's climate change. Um, it's not a, some concept that, you know, people, scientists are talking about that doesn't mean anything to anybody. 
it means everything to people here now because we're living it. So, so when did you first become aware of climate change, Hannibeth? Oh, look, I um, I studied environmental science and um, when I was in my early 20s and uh, it was it was it was a given then. It wasn't really a political thing. It was that was what was known uh, that the you know the the earth <laughs> the earth's climates are driven by how warm things are and if you if you heat things up you put more of a carbon dioxide blanket on the earth it's going to warm everything up it's going to supercharge the system and uh, that that was something i learned 20 years ago and and the scientists have been warning about this for 30 40 years um so it's it's no secret to me it's no it's not much mystery in it it's just um it's it's alarming that it's happening faster and um more seriously than the scientists predicted so we need to be doing everything in our power at the moment as a country and as a as a, as a global community to be addressing this because it is urgent. You argue on your website that you will create a more certain future for our farms, families and local industries with a planned transition to a healthy carbon neutral economy. How will that happen? Yeah, so look, the, if the climate's changing. We've just got to accept that and... There's a few things that we can do. Look, we're going to experience more extreme events like these awful floods that we've had through here in the last couple of months. We're going to experience more fires. Um, but the preparation is everything. So number one, being more prepared is going to give people more uh, certainty. So if people know, have really good modelling systems in place, they know how high to move their stuff. They know whether to evacuate or not. And though it's, it's you know, the modelling around where rain is going to fall and how much is going to fall is, is harder, but once it's fallen, water's pretty predictable. It flows downhill. So setting up good modelling systems for our river towns is, is number one, I think, in, in that regard for, being, for people being prepared and making sure the modelling's good and the data, you know, the information that's going into it is best that it can be. I mean, it's 2022. We've got the technology. We've just got to, we've just got to put it in place. And uh, the other thing is, once once we're experiencing an event like that, having the emergency services that are well resourced, they've got their 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 infrastructures resilient. Call it, you know, it's what one of the first things that happened up here was a telephone tower fell off a hill, so whole a whole area of the electorate completely lost all reception and mobile reception. So they didn't they knew that there, there was a lot of water around them, but they didn't know what was happening across the catchments. And that was really hard to get the information across. So um, it was just people were literally in the dark with no internet. And that happened in the fires as well. So it's not something new. Um, so making sure that we've got good communications that are resilient to those shocks and knocks and then making sure we've got the emergency services there on the ground. But it's it's not just about those extreme events. We're going to face more of those, yes. But it's also about climate planning. That's going to support our regional industries. It's not something that they need to be worried about. It's actually an opportunity, and that's how we need to embrace climate action. Farmers, many I've been working with farmers for a decade now, and I, I speak with them all the time, and a lot of farmers are already making changes, nature-based solutions. They're um, you know, the basics, planting trees to sort of as shelter belts to stop erosion, and also farm forestry. Um, you know, keep keeping more perennials in the ground, storing carbon in the soil. All of those things actually have more more healthy outcomes and productivity outcomes for farms. So those kind of things are, are what it means 
to me and to farmers for building resilience on the farm as well. Tell me about the course you've instigated at the Southern Cross University. Yeah, very proud to have been the founding coordinator of the world's first undergraduate course in regenerative agriculture. And I've been working at, at Southern Cross Uni for 11 years now. And it was it's such a wonderful uh, place that has brought together the best science we have and the best practitioners and saying, look, there's some absolutely fantastic um, practices out there that are making a real difference for farmers. And some of those have a really strong evidence base and other in other areas the science is still sort of catching up but bringing bringing having those conversations seeing what's working for farmers is such a powerful thing and um, the course is mostly full of farmers but about I'm really also proud of the fact that about a third of them are not from farming so we're actually attracting young people into farming as well which is what what agriculture needs to so that campus is in Lismore yeah that's right how did that go in all the floods Oh, well, the campus became an evacuation centre, Rob. Um, and now we've got uh, the schools and half of the town is living, is res- residing on the campus because, I mean, look, it's just uh, Lismore is in a terrible state, Rob. It really is. Mm-hmm. You heard someone tell you the other day, look, the main street looks like a rubbish tip, so. Yeah, yeah, look, it's um, it's it's a, it, it's hard to, to understand how deep, and why this has cut our communities unless you see it for yourself. Like I, I live in Evans Head and I was in Woodburn yesterday and community had come together to hand out an obscene amount of chocolate <laughs> to our kids. <laughs> but we're in that, we're there in the pub and, and uh, we had Colin Robson, one of our local fellows in the, in the, in the, prime uh, the final of the surf comp down in bells and i said oh can you possibly put it on the tv and they're like we've got no electricity you know they're they're, they're there with their we've got the family together and they're serving meals but you know there's there's shops all up and down the street with just smashed windows um and then the houses there's about 10 people maybe 10 houses with people camping in them at the moment out of hundreds of houses in woodburn and it's the devastation is just it's unbelievable and people are feeling like horribly abandoned at the moment yeah. and the, the feeling of desolation is 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 awful i mean don't get me wrong communities coming together and people are helping each other but they're just feeling that 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 the support they're getting is just just nowhere near the level of need that they have you talk about inspiring local action to tackle climate change how will you do that well, look, I think I think people <laughs> there's there's a few a few elements to that, but one is building building resilience at the local groups like Resilient Byron and and now Resilient Lismore. The idea behind those is bringing community together to say, right, um, we know that things are becoming increasingly uncertain and our weather patterns are changing. What can we do as a community to be best able to respond? And um, we we can look at what what people have done in other places and how people respond to natural disasters, but also thinking about things like well, who are the who are the more vulnerable people in our community? Even through COVID, and who are people that might be too scared to go to the shops? How do we look after our communities better? And it, so a lot of this comes back to the basics: looking after our communities, um, thinking about how we can take care of our neighbours better. It's, not too complex but at the same time thinking about that bigger context of yeah we need to do that every day but also when things get really serious which they just did how do we respond then and 
and uh, you know I set up Resilient Evans Head as a basically a Facebook group in in <laughs> at the end of last year it, with absolutely no intention of running for government at that point. And I thought, right, this is, I'm really busy with my work, but I'd really love to do this for my community. So I'll set up this Facebook group. People can start coming together and then we can hold some workshops down the track. And I actually got funding to do that. <laughs> but by the time the funding came through, we'd already flooded. So um, then it just came down to, right, we, I found myself in, in my husband's place of work, which is the Evans, Evans River Community School. And the teachers had formed an emergency evacuation centre and everyone's just stressed. They've been there all night. People have been coming in wet from, you know, being up to their neck in water. And there's dogs, there's elderly, there's kids. Right. Mm. Okay. Let's just sit down. Who do we have here? And what do we need to do? So in this context, it came down to, right, we've got elderly people here. We've got registered nurses who have also evacuated. Let's make sure that there's a couple of registered nurses making sure that they've got their medication. Let's make sure that there's some of the teachers here someone's responsible for just keeping an eye on on the children to make sure that they're happy and that and set up some activities for them so that they can have as positive experience as possible back to the basics and that's that's uh that's 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 what resilience is in my eyes you had an event planned for tomorrow i understand which has been cancelled because of covid problems you've now organized a replacement function so what can you tell me about that <laughs> yeah, look, this, I'll tell you right now, Rob. This is no ordinary campaign, crikey. Um, you know, we've had we've had it all. Um, just you know, so many people in my campaign lost their houses in the flood. One 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 person's house slid down a hill. You know, so what we originally planned was a series of sort of small hall events where people could come together and talk about the things that matter to them, and and that was going to be a fundraiser for the campaign. And now they're flood and landslide fundraisers. Uh, but uh, apparently this isn't this is an unusual way of campaigning. But you know, to me, this is what it's all about: bring the community together, talk about the things that matter. And this event that's going to be on on Sunday the twenty fourth in Almara is is about agriculture, about the future of farming. It's about um, regenerative agriculture, yes, but it's also about how do we bring how do we support young people into farming into the future and all those important questions. And plus, we have an absolutely incredible um, pianist playing, Madure Dutton, who's going to be um, playing playing a set or two as well. So we, we had an event a couple of weekends ago at Rouse Mill and it was just such a positive event. You know, we our communities went from, we've got to remember the context here, you know, we went from wearing masks. The very weekend that the masks came off was when it flooded. So people haven't, been together without masks and gatherings and music for for it's two amazing. years. It's amazing, isn't so it? <laughs> yeah. I know. So so these events are so important in bringing people together. And right now, our, our community really needs that that healing. It's um, mental health is a big issue here right now. So the more we can bring communities together to support each other, the better. I say. Looking at a map of Page, it's a diverse area. Like it goes from coastal towns and cities, or towns and villages to farming areas inland. So how do you marry all those things together? Yeah, well, look, I, I think that's why I'm calling it the Teal and Rust Tour, you know, our beautiful oceans and our, and our rich soils. And to me, that's, that, they're my favourite colours too, right? So my, I was out in the, the, the ocean this morning surfing and, uh, in the water, which sort of getting back to Teal, you know, <laughs> after all the floodwaters. 
and but the work that I do and my passion is with our regional industries and farming so that's that's why I, I think I can represent this electorate because I understand both of those elements our coastal communities and also our farming and how important that is for our food and fiber production and and, and that's what this region is we have we have farming we've got fishing we've got we've got these coastal industries and we've got the arts we've got music we've got incredible artists and sculptors and so celebrating all of those things is is what I'm trying to do as a part of my campaign and part of this tour so it's uh yeah we're just yeah doing my best to represent all those different communities Hannah Beth you gained a certain notoriety because of the 2002 Bali bombing so what impact did that moment have on you preparing to be an independent candidate and so has it changed or you've been described as some as the angel of Bali. So has that changed you as a person or has it prepared you to be a, a better candidate? Gosh, I mean, look, it's 20 years ago. <laughs> no, it's a long time you ago, know, isn't it? You know, what, what I, one thing, you know, I, I, that was a, it was a terrible thing that happened to Australia and to, to Bali and to many places. I lost my partner in the Bali bombing and I was, you know, I was on the dance floor in the centre of that huge, huge bomb and I got out of there alive with belly a scratch. So to me, walking away from there, I realised how much loss and impact that it had on people's lives and the shockwaves just keep going forever in a way, you know. And I vowed to make my life count, to not waste a day, to have courage, to stand up and speak the truth. And what I've seen now in our communities is that you know, I went back in and I, and, I, and I saw a young man on the ground, so I picked him up, I carried him out, and a photo was taken, and that was how I became the Angel of Bali. But that's what so many hundreds of people in our communities just did here in, in Lismore, Woodburn, Broadwater. They jumped on tinnies in the middle of the night and they, they hacked their neighbours out of the roof with whatever they could they they went for hours on a kayak to, to get people out because that's all the craft they had. You know, people intrinsically are incredible. And those those core Aussie values, you know, mateship, compassion, fair go, equality, like that those are the things that make it so special to be human, you know, and it and it that was something that helped me to heal from the Bali bombing and I hope that, that will help pe- people to heal from this as well. Has the issue of climate change been raised by many people during your campaign? Oh, look, I've certainly had a few people, you know, a good number of people come up to me and, and say, I'm ready to talk about climate change now. This is this is just so, you know, this is just beyond anything we could have imagined. Um, it's It's become a priority now for us. We need to address this. We can't, we've got to, do what we can to stabilise the climate, and uh, yeah, and that, and that comes down to to cutting our emissions. It comes down to, but it also comes back to integrity in politics because we can't just keep throwing public money at coal and gas while we're we're spending you know, subsidising coal and gas to over eleven billion dollars a year. That's fifty six times more than we spend on on, on you know building these resilience agencies and and, and responding to this. So. You know, just people just paying their fair share, not not chucking money at these industries would be a good start. And uh, uh, but we need, but the, the but the thing is, right? We've we've got 
and a good number of people in Australia who are dependent on, on working in coal and gas. And what happens is, as as, in, as insurance companies divest, or as people say, I don't want you, I don't want to invest in that. Take my super out of coal. Suddenly, these companies go, Oh, actually, it's not economically viable for me to keep my my coal power plant open. I'm going to shut it. And then suddenly, hundreds of people lose their job. So if you if you have a plan and a strategy for transitioning away from this and retraining people into the new economy, then you're going to give everybody a more certain future. What have you got to say about the LNP target of net zero by 2050? Yeah, well, the the, the um, devil's in the detail with that one, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 very reliant on technologies that don't exist yet. And this whole sort of carbon sequestration thing, like this is this is my area. This is what I teach at the university. So the one, the sort of flagship for carbon sequestration is the Gorgon project in WA, and it's a complete disaster. <laughs> Look it up; it's yeah. awful. Uh, hasn't done anything very much at all. And and you know, coming but it, and the the other issue with that strategy is that we do it all at the end. Now, if you if you make all take all the action at the end, there's a lot of emissions that have gone into the atmosphere in the meantime, and we need to act now. We need to be we don't need highly complicated technologies. We need a really good strategy for tree planting in Australia. Malcolm Turnbull had the strategy to plant a billion trees. Uh, if we can if we can actually fund landholders, fund our forestry industry to plant a lot of trees, then not only can we be locking up carbon. We've also got more if – if we plant the right trees that are going to look after our native species, we can be looking after our koala and supporting a, a native forestry industry for the future. So we, we, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be that complicated. We just need the right strategies put in place and implemented, not just um, ideas by media release. <laughs> we need it done. We need it done soon. Hannah Beth, there's a couple of numbers here I'm sure you're aware of, but Page was won in 2019 by the National Party rep, Representative Kevin Hogan with nearly 50% of the, the vote, and the independent of the day received less than 5%. So you've got mm. some ground to mm. make up. So how is that going to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, look, it, it's really interesting, you know, because the, the, the Climate 200 group have gotten a, a negative rap in the media re- lately, but I tell you right now, this would not have been possible without them. Uh, I, when when I applied for their funding, I had a, a ragtag group of volunteers, and we'd raised about ten grand of local funding. Um, but we could they wouldn't fund fund me without that. They needed to know that I was you know I'd set up my own uh, and that we had our own thing going on. But they then helped us enormously, and we've had a lot more community funds come in as well. Because look, the the challenge is people need to know who you are if they're going to vote mm-hmm. for you. And as an independent, you don't have the party brand. So having their support means that I've been able to put up billboards, do TV ads, do these things that the parties will do, and, you know, still a fraction of what they'll spend. But it means that there's a chance that people will know who I am. And I'll tell you what, the polling is showing that they're starting to know who I am, which is great. How big is your supporter base? I don't know. It's hard to say. But, look, what I find is that in when I go – because Paige is huge. You can drive four hours from one end to the other. And – whether I go up to Kyogle uh, in the in the sort of northwest, or whether I head down to Wulgulga in the southeast, people come up to me and they say, "Oh, you're Hannah Beth. I'm voting for you. Now I've got someone to vote for. I'm really excited about that. How can I help?" Or, or I have people come up to me saying Korakai, and who said, 
my family's been voting for the National Party for generations. I've had enough. I'm voting for you. You're going to be a person who's going to fight for us. And so people are knowing who I am. And other, other times people just go, oh, we've got one. We're voting for you. <laughs> we've got an independent. Because <laughs> I think oh, nas- nationally people are learning about what this new kind of wave of independence is about. And it's about integrity. It's about making sure we have a federal ICAC. It's about climate action. And with and and but both of these need to have teeth and they need to be implemented ASAP. <laughs> Why should the people of Page vote for you, Hennebeth? Because I will speak for them, Rob, because I genuinely care about this community and there's no weight of a party towing me down. There's no weight of a party which is making decisions in a city that disadvantage the regions. As an independent, there's just me and my community, and I'm here to speak for, for you. So that's that's why I'm doing this, because I feel that party politics has just is, is leaving our people behind. And as an independent, there's none of that. Hannah Beth, is there something else you would like to say? I oh, just thank you so much for your, for your time, Rob. And look, I'm just here for the things that are important for the people in my region, which is affordable housing, a federal integrity commission, climate action, and ensuring that our children have a fair, healthy and productive future. So that's that's why I'm standing. That's what I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm hoping I can win the seat of page this election. Thanks, Annabeth. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the earth. Peace with earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. To finish, I would like to advertise a new book called We Are the Middle of Forever. It is edited by Dar Jamail, who listeners will remember from earlier this year, and Stan Rushworth. It is a collection of Indigenous voices from Turtle Island on the changing earth. Here is an extract from Stan Rushworth, who has Cherokee heritage, talking about the colonial mindset which is causing so much destruction to the climate. I think this will put you in the mindset needed if you are going on that tour to Carmichael up at um, the Wangan and Jagalingo Territory. When we hear the word Turtle Island, it's a name given to North and Central America by Indigenous people. I think, uh, again, rapaciousness and the, uh, the violence toward Earth uh, the attitude that that it's okay to just take everything and to take from others, and I th- I think that's cultural far more than it is human. But like I was saying before, we've been immersed in that cultural modality long enough to where it's termed the human experience. If we look at, say, 60,000 years ago, uh, Australian Aboriginal people who were baking cake, they were living in such a way where there's no 
archaeological evidence of any major conflagration for tens of thousands of years. An archaeologist, anthropologist, told me there's no archaeological evidence of any major conflagration here on Turtle Island for a minimum of 10,000 years. Native people will tell you it goes from, from the dawn of time. So it's not that they were perfect at all. It's not that they were without violence at all. Um, but in terms of genocidal uh, confrontations, there's no real evidence of that. There's speculation on the part of Western people and some Native people say, well, you know, they were responsible for the decimation of the megafauna and stuff like that. And they weren't all ecologists and so on and so forth. And those things are true to a degree, but in a larger scope of looking at human behavior, uh, which is a uh, really an outgrowth of human motivation and human uh, understanding of humans' place uh, with life itself and with Earth, um, I think that the human experience is far more uh, benign if we look at the evidence and, and far more uh, interactive with the planet in a positive way than, uh, than not. And I think the, the decimations that we see through colonization are very young in terms of, of the, um, uh, the larger look at, at human habitation of the planet. So I think it's largely propaganda to believe that uh, we're fallen by nature. I think that serves authoritarian systems that then tell us the only way we can achieve moral behavior is through going through them, all right? Accepting those, those uh, authoritarian systems that supposedly have, you know, the one-on-one the -on -one with God or, or creator. You know, I don't see that, uh, that attitude happening pre-contact here. Uh, I think where we had in Mesoamerica the rise of the empires, uh, I think that's where people did fall away. I don't think that's a, an inevitability. I think, say, when I look at the Maya, uh, the Mayan, what they call civilization, really was an empire. I don't see that as the civilization because it was only well, maybe three, four hundred years long, which is nothing compared to the amount of time that all those peoples who comprised the Maya had existed in that area, had lived in that area. So you had all these different tribal peoples that had been there for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. And then they had a short period of time where they were an empire, and then they walked away from that empire. Okay. So from our standpoint, as an empire civilization, we look at that and say, well, there's that civilization, but we don't really look and study who were all these people before they became that for a short-lived period of time, and why did they leave that? Okay, 
uh, here on Turtle Island, there's no evidence of that kind of empire. There were some places where people uh, 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 took over certain areas and things like that, but you know, the early French maps show that every square inch of Turtle Island was inhabited. Every square inch. There was no vast wilderness, you know, with a few Indians roaming around bumping into trees and stuff like that. You know, every square inch. You know, if you look at the, the French map, see, all this data is there. This is why education is so important. You know, the French said, well, yeah, every square inch is like accounted for. And so... For me to go from here to here, I need a passport. I need a, a message from this leader to that leader there that I'm okay, right? So that I can go through and do my trapping and stuff like that. So conflicts, yeah. Uh, someplace more conflict than, conflicts than other places. Uh, Native Californians, very little conflict. What? Soever. Um, so again, I think it's a lack of evidence to believe that, a lack of looking at the evidence and a lack of really thinking about it. So our educational system uh, is kind of like what uh, Bruce Pascoe, who's a uh, uh, Aboriginal scholar in Australia, says a lot of the actual data has been purposefully left out because it doesn't fit the colonial narrative. And that's a very recent uh, narrative within, especially if you look at the aboriginals of Australia and how long people, I mean, they just found a tool for grinding flour 60,000 years old. That's a long time, all right? So how long have the British and the Irish been in Australia? A couple hundred years max, right? And so they are leaving their own sentences written by their own soldiers who first came there who said they're leaving these sentences out. Sentences like, we came across a valley with yams planted as far as the eye could see that were planted so thick we couldn't even walk across the valley. With, and they're saying the same thing. Gerald Clark is a Kumeyaay scholar in Riverside, I believe, says the same thing. Early Spanish soldiers, we came across a valley that was planted with native agriculture, as far as you could see, with irrigation, natural irrigation, uh, a herd of deer a thousand strong, immense numbers of people, right? That's all there. We just have to mine it, okay? We also have to mine uh, things like the Santa Cruz mission by looking at the records, like what a friend of mine is, is doing now in a book about the Santa Cruz mission, to see that uh, only 15% of the children born in that mission made it to 15 years old. The rest didn't. They died. Right, eighty-five percent of the people went in the mission died. That's a higher attrition rate than Dachau. Right, so all the data is there if we have the will to go beneath the colonial narrative. I think people are reaching out to indigenous people 
in a sense, the positive sense of that is they're reaching out to something, to a memory within themselves that I think is very positive. The, the negative aspect of it is, is that they very often are doing it in the same modality by which they've taken the land. Okay. And that's problematical. So there's not the degree of respect that needs to be there. And there's not the degree of self-reflection that needs to be there on a societal level and on a personal level. Okay. So in that, there's a deification of Native people, which is an objectification at the same time. I'm saying in there that to reach out to Indigenous people without looking at the genocide is ironic, or reaching out to Indigenous people now to save their butts is ironic uh, at best and is really insulting at worst, and, and it's not going to work. You can't come to the wisdom of how to deal with this level of destruction without doing the hard work. You just can't. It's just not going to happen. The colonial mindset that Stan Rushworth talked about on Turtle Island is played out here too in Australia. The film explains that the man from Snowy River is an avatar for white colonists and the Brumbies are an avatar for all the animals and species we've introduced. I had never seen it this way before, but revising our story in favour of admiring the great sponge, which is the high country, conserving water and buffering us against climate disruption is urgent. I didn't think Melbourne listeners would be able to see this film, but you can. It's on in October at the Documentary Film Festival. And if you want to organise a public screening, go to FanForce, where the water starts. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Thank you to the Tour de Carmichael team for inviting me to their webinar and to Cody McAvoy and Fahima Bahadrahishan for encouraging us to join the tour in central Queensland. They will be cycling from 23rd of May, just after the federal election, until 27th of May. And you can get to the starting point by road nine hours from Cairns. Bring your own camping gear, which will be carried behind the cyclists in a support van. You can still register to go. It costs only $250 and it's free for First Nation people. You can also make a donation from the city to help pay for the food. Just go to Tour de Carmichael and register. Thank you also to Robert McLean, who interviewed Mary Beth Luke, the Angel of Bali, and good luck to her in her electoral campaign up at Lismore. We welcome any feedback, listeners, and we'll read anything you send us on the air. You can drop us a line at Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy in Victoria. This week, we have a mystery country listener from Mudgee who said she loved hearing Mandy King last week describe how tiny the animals and plants are up in the high country, which is so endangered by feral horses. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.